Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, kicking off a five-week series called Misunderstood Verses, and I have handpicked, well, let's, let's be honest, there are a lot of verses you could pick to deal with a series like this, um, but I have chosen five um, that I think are pertinent, not only to us as a community, but frankly, us as a society at large, like cultural uh, sort of things. So I, I picked these verses and we'll kind of, we'll go with it. So Genesis 1-1 is where we'll look at tonight. Kids, this is a very important verse for you to have memorized. So uh, I will challenge you to, to get to learn this one. All right. Genesis 1-1. These are the words of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we humbly confess this evening that apart from your grace, uh, we are an obstinate, stiff-necked people. We need your spirit to clean us on the inside, lest we be solely concerned with the outside and thus find ourselves being hypocrites. We ask for your favor now as we look at your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So for a while now, I've wanted to do a, a series like this again. It's something I've done in the past. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited that we have the next five weeks to, to do it again. And if you've ever um, heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, you might find that um, aphorism, that truth, to be something that you uh, that is true, that maybe you... Um, it's kind of ironic. You could be familiar with the aphorism, familiarity breeds contempt. So sometimes we get to be so familiar with something that we move on from cherishing the thing to basically finding ourselves despising the thing. So now my guess is that for you, you haven't arrived to the point where you view the Bible with contempt. Um, your story is different than mine. Um, some of you grew up in the church, some of you did not. You came to faith later. But especially for those who grew up in the church, you may, uh, you may not probably have, have looked at the Bible with contempt. You still cherish the Bible as a whole. But the other thing that could be true is you might say that familiarity breeds misunderstanding. Um, familiarity, you can be so familiarized with something, at least something that you think to be true, um, that you actually don't spend time studying it and you misunderstand it. I'll give you one quick example. One is how many wise men brought gifts to Jesus? Okay, the Bible actually does not tell us how many, but we automatically, the, we think there's three. Well, there were three gifts given, but probably there was a whole entourage that came. But those types of things we just assume and thus we misunderstand. So, the goal behind this series is to take that which is familiar to you and then bring much needed clarity to it. So each week I'm going to pick one verse, just one Bible verse. Um, they're all carefully um, selected. And, and I do think they are largely misunderstood. And thus, and thus they're propagated in our churches as such or, or they're misunderstood by people who are only somewhat familiar with Christianity. So... 
Um, for example, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to look at Matthew 7.1, the famous judge not verse. How many of you have heard that ripped out of context? So probably almost every other day. Um, judge not. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to look at John 3.16. And I'm sure hopefully that will be enlightening when you actually get rid of all the false assumptions about it. Look at the context. Look at the words themselves. And you'll find, I, th- I think you'll find it enlightening. So anyway, that's my aim for the, for the series. I simply want to provide you with verses that are in context And then I want to challenge the assumptions you may have about those particular verses. So hence the title, Misunderstood Verses. Very clever. Not really, but that's all I could come up with. (laughs) So if the Lord sees fit after this series, um, I want to look at how the Bible frames biblical community and how that might affect us as a young church plant. So that'll give you an idea of where we're going. So at any rate, let's look at our verse here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. I remember quite um, vividly as a young child memorizing this verse, going to VBS as a kid, and this was one of the central verses that, that I was to memorize. It's the first verse in the entire Bible. The first verse in the entire Bible literally sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. Genesis as a whole is a foundational book. We learn about our origins how did, how did mankind get here? We learn about creation and God's plan for creation. Um, we learn about redemption in the book of Genesis. We learn about the doctrine of sin. Uh, we learn about what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, we learn about how, as God's vice regents, uh, we are kings and priests and in God's garden world, um, which means that our task The Dominion Covenant, right, is to work and keep the entire world through obedience to God. So Genesis also teaches us about total depravity, yet it also teaches us about God's pursuit of man despite man's problem of sin. The book of Genesis answers this question, what does it look like to serve the sovereign God, with this answer, obedience, worship, and mission. Genesis Um, combats all worldviews that do not align with Christianity. Now I want to quote um, an author, Sidney Gradanus. He, He said this about Genesis, and I think it's a brilliant insight. He said that Genesis teaches that God is sovereign, which is opposed to atheism, and wholly other than the universe versus pantheism. He's the only true God, thus running against polytheism, He's the creator of the universe, um, thus that rules out secularism and naturalistic evolution. He made a covenant with his creation, and he upholds his creation as opposed to deism. He also made um, human beings in his image to manage the world on his behalf as opposed to hedonism, right, where we just do whatever we want. Gradanus goes on, he says, God is not the source of evil, but created everything good so that his creatures can enjoy the physical world, as opposed to the heresy of Gnosticism. End quote. So out of all the things that we need to know, knowing God is of utmost importance. So Genesis teaches us all about God. Now, there are quite a, quite a bit of themes in the book, and these will tie into what I want to say regarding Genesis 1.1. One of the most important themes 
early on is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The lordship of God himself, the triune God, over all creation. That is the central theme of the book. And we also learn about God's covenant. Um, the word bereath in Hebrew. God's covenant. God binds himself by oath to his creation and to his people. Now I'll explain covenant in a little bit. Um, we also learn about blessings and cursings. Blessing in Hebrew is that word's used more times in Genesis than any other book. Uh, ten times in Genesis, the promise of a special relationship with God is talked about. Nineteen times in Genesis, God promises seed or offspring, um, descendants. Uh, Thirteen times there's talk of a promise of land, mostly surrounding Abraham. Now, this is also significant because in Genesis 3.15, you can go there if you want, Genesis 3.15, we get the first gospel promise, the first gospel promise right on the heels of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. It says, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This verse is a prophetic verse, and it speaks of Christ's death and resurrection. His death, which was provoked by Satan himself, the seed of the serpent, right? The serpent himself, and his conquering of Satan by rising from the dead. So Satan um, struck his heel. Jesus died. But not only that, Jesus conquered the devil, crushed his head the moment he walked out of the tomb. So, so quite literally, there's this division in history, this division of people, those who are of Satan and those who are of Eve, who are of the promise, those who are of Christ. So as you can see, Genesis, Genesis is absolutely foundational to understanding redemptive history. The word Genesis literally means beginning. That's what the word means. It means beginning. So it's, it's an appropriate title for a book that meant, that's meant to tell us about the beginning of things. So let's dig into our verse, and I'm going to really dig into each word as we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Rush Dooney writes, If Christianity does not take Genesis 1 very seriously and literally, it is suicidal. End quote. What Rush Dooney meant was that anything short of a literal six-day creation is utter blasphemy. It's suicidal. Um, If we allow any shred of evolutionary processes or um, any of those types of things, we honestly provoke God to anger. I think God hates, quite frankly, the doctrine, the theory, rather, of of evolution. I think he hates it. It, It's a maligning of his creation. It's a maligning of his image bearers. um, And no one can live consistently with that anyway. Now, just sort of as um, an opinion that I have, I think you can be a Christian and say, well, maybe the age of the earth, maybe it's older. Um, I don't think you can, can be consistent and say that it's millions of years. Um, I think you can be a Christian and, and wrongly believe that. Um, but you're just not consistent. You're not correct with how to interpret Genesis 1. Frankly, Genesis 1-1 is a non-negotiable text. If you mess with Genesis 1-1 and the creation story that follows, you literally mess with the entire Bible. If you tear out the foundation, the whole building collapses. That's, that's why it's essential. 
Now, the skeptics will talk about Christ's miracles and resurrection and so on, and, and they'll share how they, they just can't quite believe it all. Um, you know, I, I always say when, when, when people say that, look, if Genesis 1-1 is true, and we obviously presuppose that it is, then everything else flows from there. You'll hear people, I can't believe that Jesus walked on water. Well, look, go back to Genesis 1-1. If that's true, then not, anything else that comes, it's really not that big of a deal, frankly. So if, if we are simply bags of meat and protoplasm, um, we're evolved apes and we're very um, special goo, <laughs> then nothing matters. Nothing matters. You, you can't have an opinion about anything. Now think about it for a second. If we evolved over millions of years, why do you think that you can even trust your belief in that theory? What justification do you have for that? If we're just this result of naturalistic progressivism, things going on over billions and billions of years, how can you know that we are a result of naturalistic um, progressivism? You, you can't. You can't justify it. Um, if we're just brain gas and chemicals, a product of time and chance that just imposed itself upon matter, then you, you can't have an opinion about ethics. You can't have an opinion about morality, laws of logic, and all of these things. So basically then, if you reject Genesis 1-1, you embrace anything and everything. And then you can't even stand on it soundly because it's sand. So there, in, in that worldview, there is, there is no real purpose there's no real purpose in a world of accidents and only accidents. Now, this is why I say that Genesis 1-1 is absolutely crucial and that we can't mess with it or what follows from it. If you lose what God has given us here, you've lost it all. Thus, Genesis 1-1 is absolutely foundational for our faith. Now, having said that, let's pick apart the verse. We'll draw some, some conclusions afterwards. In the beginning, Berashit um, in Hebrew, in the beginning, that is to say, the beginning of the world, not the beginning of God. God never had a beginning. He never had a beginning. His existence is presupposed. His existence is eternal. The beginning here is the start of all things that exist in the cosmos. Beginning refers to the creational event, the entire six days of creation, not something before the six days um, and, or anything else. Some believe some believe that God started by just throwing a bunch of stuff into existence. And, I, and I've heard this from, from people. And then God, you know, he threw it into existence and then he fashioned it together. Um, sort of like an artist. They, they love the artist thinking, you know, God just threw all the periodic elements in the table out there. And then he sort of just picked it apart. And isn't that beautiful? And yada, yada. This isn't, this isn't what Genesis 1 teaches. The beginning is the beginning of the cosmos, the beginning of time and matter. So in the beginning, who? Kids, you listening? In the beginning, who? God. God. Elohim is the name for God in, in, in the Hebrew language. God. In the beginning, God. God, this name Elohim is this, what theologians call this honorific plural. Um, it shows the majesty of this God. 
um, the beauty of this God. This particular name is reflective of his transcendent sovereignty over creation. He is the only God, the true and one God. It's all about God's bigness. God is big. You ever thought about that, how big God is? Um, he is Lord of all. Um, he has, uh, he, he's Lord of all. His supremacy over all creation is asserted right out of the gates, right out of the very beginning. There are no rivals with this God. It doesn't say in the beginning there were some gods who had a fight and an argument, and then eventually one created the cosmos. There is one true God. His power is presupposed, for he is the king who rules not over just, just Israel and Abraham, but this God rules over the entire world, the entire created order, the entire cosmos. God's wisdom, God's power, God's goodness in his creative hand is all presupposed right at the very start of the Holy Bible. It's all about who he is in and of himself. In the beginning, this God, this majestic God, this uncreated, eternal God, what did he do? In the beginning, God what? Created. Created. The word is bara. He created. Um, it means created out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 teaches that all exists because God made it. All things that exist, the material world exists because God made it. Um, many Hebrew words talk about God's activity of bringing um, creation into existence. But bara is an exclusively used word that's used to, uh, to describe something that only God can do. Only God can do it. Think of David in Psalm 51, the famous repentance passage who in an act of repentance, he cried out to God, and do you remember what he said? Create in me a clean heart, O God, right? Create, same word, bara, create out of nothing. Um, David is saying, essentially, he's crying out to God, God, give me a new heart out of nothing because I can't give myself a new heart, only you can. Which I would argue is a... Um, sort of a, a shadow of what we find revealed in the New Testament with the doctrine of regeneration. God gives us a new heart. He takes the heart of stone out, gives us a heart of flesh. Because God creates ex nihilo, that means out of nothing, this, um, this creation, the creation reflects his righteousness. It reflects his wisdom, his compassion, his glory, his immortality, and his utter supremacy. In other creation stories, uh, the gods were created somehow. They were made. But in our worldview, in the Christian worldview, God wasn't created. Um, God was always there. He is infinite. He is eternal. He's always existing. And yet he created everything. So in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. This is a, what we call a mirrorism. It's a, it shows that these two words belong together. You can't separate them. You ever heard the phrase part and parcel? Um, it means one thing, not two. There's two words, but it's used to describe one thing. You can't separate them. Um, you can't tear them apart. The heavens and the earth are distinguishable, but they belong together as a whole. Don't mistake... Don't, <laughs> This is where we get kind of messed up in our theology. We think heaven's just sort of up there and out there, but the heavens and the earth belong together. 
They, they were intended to be one thing. Sin fractured that, but Jesus intends, we just sang joy to the world, right? To bring his curse, bring the gospel of his of, of Jesus himself, far as the curse is found. So in a sense, Jesus is sort of pulling the cosmos and the heavens back together. And and that's the process of history. Now, when Moses wrote these words, as God gave them to him, he was talking here about the entirety of the cosmos, the entire organized universe. Um, in which we live. It is the entire created order, space, galaxies, stars, and other planets, the earth itself, the sun, Mars, all the other galaxies that are out there, everything that is coming in the following verses, God created it. He made it. Now, as you can see, there's, there's a lot in just one verse. Genesis 1.1 asserts the biblical worldview, and we would do well to believe it. The ever-eternal God made everything out of nothing. Now, this flies in the face of the plethora of views that you see on Facebook or TV or even yesterday outside the mill at, at Planned Parenthood. It's pretty clear that we live in a pluralistic culture, which is to say there are plenty of, of th- there's this plurality, this multiplicity of worldviews that are out there, and each of them are vying for attention. Now, if you've ever watched footage or been to the Women's March, um, you have seen a worldview on display. There are all these pride parades going on this month, you know, and, and we celebrated by eating at Chick-fil-A yesterday, and which apparently we're not supposed to do, but hey, Jesus chicken. Um, those are worldviews. They're out there. There are worldviews of socialism and communism, Marxism, fascism. There are worldviews that say you can, you can kill a baby right up until the time he or she is to be born, and even afterwards if certain circumstances are met. There are, there are worldviews out there that think that sodomite marriage is a good thing, and something that is slowly creeping to the surface is the worldview that accepts pedophilia. The, the sexual revolution of the 60s, 60s was nothing more than a resuscitation, a revitalization of paganism. And it continues today all around you. The the fruit of this so-called religious freedom is now here, and it isn't pretty. And why is that? Because not all worldviews are created equal. Now I want to illustrate something, so bear with me. And I'm going to use hand motions so you can see, because I don't have a chalkboard which is okay. So kids, you, I want you to follow along with this too. Whenever Cornelius Van Til would walk into his seminary class at Westminster, um, he, would go, uh, he would go and teach the biblical worldview. And what he would do is he would draw something on the chalkboard. And he would, he would, he would draw these two circles. So imagine this bigger circle up here, right? And then imagine a smaller circle right underneath it. Okay, so we have kind of a bigger circle and then a, and a smaller circle under here. And, and now you have the big circle here, the smaller one here, and there were two lines that sort of connected to him. That's the picture that he would draw. And what, essentially what he would say is, this is your worldview. <laughs> Drawn out on a chalkboard, two-dimensional, this is your worldview. You have two circles, one big one here, small one here, two lines connecting them. Now, perhaps you've never conceived of that before, but it's simply a way of explaining the biblical Christian 
worldview. And here's what they mean. In the top circle, you have the creator, the creator God, the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is not dependent upon creation. He's distinct from creation. He's transcendent. He's here. Um, God, he's transcendent, which simply means that he's, he's utterly, entirely distinct from creation. He is quite literally above us. He's infinite. We are finite. He is all-powerful. We are a bunch of whiners. That's how that works. But at the bottom, you have the smaller circle, the creation or the creature. God is distinct. He's here. We're here. Um, he, uh, God is not creation. He's not defined by it. And creation is not God. There are two different circles. One's bigger. So the the two spheres, if we can call God a sphere for a moment, they're distinct. They're distinct. They're distinct, yet they are connected by God's covenant. Now, Genesis 1-1 is God's covenant with creation. His binding self-revelation and his commitment to his handiwork, his created order. Now, in order for us to destroy arguments, which is what um, 2 Corinthians 10 says we, says we should do, Christians are to destroy arguments. And man, we had a good time doing that yesterday. They, we're just, that's the, whole, that's the whole point of apologetics. That's the whole point. We're at an abortion mill. We're, we're there to, yes, rescue children. We want babies to be born and not murdered. But also, we are there contending for the faith, and one of the ways we contend for that faith is to destroy arguments, to tear them down. But if we're going to do that, we have to be people who understand this distinction. What, What is taught in schools and in colleges is the opposite of this chart. Peter Jones calls that, what I showed you, twoism, right? There, there are two spheres. They're distinct from each other. That's what the you are a twoist. You didn't know that, but now you do. You are a twoist. Um, the other worldview, the pagan worldview, one that you see every day getting thrown in your face, is oneism. Oneism, not twoism, but oneism. One circle. There's no transcendent Creator God. There's only the natural world. There's there's only that which we can see and taste and touch and smell and so forth. There is no such thing as spirituality um, because there's no spiritual world. That what you see just is. Um, there is no God that you are morally accountable to. So your job is to just make yourself happy, live by that rule and that rule alone. So this is the fruit of Charles Darwin, the fruit of Karl Marx, the fruit of Carl Jung, and a whole host of anti-God-hating philosophers, pagans, who have tried to eradicate the distinction between the creator and the creation. Now the problem is, with all of this, is that the church has at times bought it. They bought the lie. Many Christians are oneists, and they don't even know it. And if you think that there, are, there is no transcendent lawgiver to whom all men must give an account, you've probably bought into the oneism worldview. Listen to Peter Jones. This is, I recommend some of his work. He, he does excellent work on the issue of paganism in, in culture and society. Peter Jones said this, Oneism sees the world as self-creating. Oneism sees the world as self-creating or perpetually existing and self-explanatory. Everything is made up of the same stuff, whether matter, spirit, or a mixture of it all. There's one kind of existence, which 
in one way or another. We worship as divine or as ultimate, ultimately important, even if that means worshiping ourselves. Though there is an apparent differentiation and even hierarchy, all distinctions are, in principle, eliminated, and everything has the same worth. This is a homocosmology, a worldview built on sameness. The classic term, Jones says, is paganism, worship of nature, end quote. Do you see the problem? It literally takes the two circles, pushes them together, and rewrites the entire biblical worldview. And so what, what happens? All the angry feminists come out with their signs and anger at events like a woman's march. A worldview that will kill babies on demand and elevate femininity to, to an unbiblical position. All of that is oneists going to work. That's what it is. It's oneism. Notice what Jones said in part of that quote. There is one kind of existence which in one way or another we worship as divine or of ultimate importance, even if that means worshiping ourselves. Don't tell me that's not the spirit of, our, of the age right now. We worship ourselves. So any worldview that's out there that, that tries to cast off these perceived chains of what God said is a worldview that is absolutely ripe for destruction. Listen, this is why Genesis 1-1 absolutely matters. It is the first verse in your Bible, and it absolutely matters. You are familiar with the verse, but don't misunderstand it. And don't misunderstand its importance, and don't, don't underestimate the weightiness of what Genesis 1-1 teaches. Go ahead and flip with me to, to Romans 1. We had that read earlier. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read that again. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, in light of all that, right, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Here's the key verse, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul shows us the oneism, twoism difference right here in this text. The worldview is right here. Those who walk in rebellion against God, what do they do? They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, and instead they worship and serve the creature 
rather than the Creator. When men stop worshiping the true God, they don't stop worshiping. They worship anyone and anything. And what happens is man tries, he, he decides to rebel against God. What, is, what happens? What does he do? He, he does his own thing. Gender gets conflated. So there's no distinction between male and female. If there's no distinction between the creator God and his creation, then why would there be a distinction between a man and a woman? And why can't you swap teams? What else happens? Homosexuality, of which Paul speaks of just a few verses later, becomes now a treasured sacrament in our society. Sexual behavior is deeply religious. It's deeply religious, and if it isn't guarded by a transcendent God, then anything goes. If there's no image of God in us, as Genesis outlines for us, then there is no image to mimic. We simply get to do whatever feels right. When you have a worldview that collapses the creator-creation and creator-creature distinction, you have a naturalistic evolutionary view that doesn't even see the difference between animals and mankind. Which is, if you remember uh, the news a couple years back about the gorilla in Cincinnati who was shot, and that became a national, everyone, not to get all punny on you, but everyone went ape about it. And it was like just absolute chaos. I can't believe that they shot the gorilla, Harambe, right? Long live Harambe. And like, why? And all this frenzy is happening all the while Planned Parenthood continues to sell baby parts. And you look around and think, have we lost our minds? And the answer is yes, we have. Without this distinction, you get false doctrines like, you know, man becomes God. Um, Opposites are brought together without distinction. They're the same. Everything's conflated. Moral order in a society is not a concern. And since there's no objective truth and reality, you, you get to do whatever feels best. And that's what we've been cramming down the throats of kids in public schools for years. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want to be. And it's sort of, we dangle the carrot out there, you know, cradle to grave, security by the state, you name it, it's all out there. And, and then they lose a game and they cry and their life is over because they, they don't understand that not everyone can be winners, that there are, in fact, losers. And we have this culture that has, it's, it's just, it's nonsense. Now, this is a seductive um, thing for Christians because the message, you know, do whatever you want, it appeals to the flesh. It appeals to our lusts. You know, reject the law of God and suddenly we are seduced. And this is why there's so-called Christians who are just out there adamantly supporting sodomy and gender dysfunction. This is why there are Christians who who try to to justify pornography use, saying things like, well, it's art and, you know, and my wife and I like it anyway. And we, we, we throw away the creator and we do our own thing. We are God. And so we don't, we don't seek holiness. We don't seek Righteousness, we just do whatever feels best. This self-fulfillment message is seductive for Christians because though we have died in Christ, our old nature likes to rear its ugly head. And whenever, whenever something crosses your path, 
and it's something that will satiate your lusts, the sinful nature wants to latch on to grab a hold of it and hang on tightly. And that's where you have to make war. So if you throw out Genesis 1-1 and you throw out Romans chapter 1, what happens? You don't have to worry about accountability. You don't. You throw God out of the picture and you'll find yourself in the position of being able to pursue whatever it is you want to. You becomes ultimate. You becomes the transcendent. The sphere has become one. You are now God. This is one of the deepest challenges that we have before us today, church. We are, we are firmly committed to the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ died for your sins. He was raised for your salvation. He sits on the throne, ruling and reigning now. Today, we have confidence. We have what we need. But Christ will continue to get pushed out of the town square until Christians get back to a biblical view of Genesis 1-1. If we will not hold firmly to the faith that has once been delivered to all the saints, a worldview that is grounded in this distinction between the Creator and the creation, if we don't do that, we will get swallowed up by the paganism you see all around us. And that's why you can see, even in this month, Presbyterian churches, the liberal PCUSA branch, marching in the parades, holding the sign, we love everyone, everyone's welcome, yada, yada, yada. Not Presbyterian, not church. They're holding a sign, but that's not what they are. They're pagans. They're pagans. So we have a worldview that's rooted in inspired scripture. We have a worldview that's um, rooted in inerrant scripture. We have a worldview rooted in the fact that this God made all things. We have a worldview built upon the fact that the eternal God of, of creation has chosen to reveal himself to us. As Calvin said, he, he came down and he, he spoke baby talk to us. He, Jesus walked among us. We have a worldview that stems from proper distinctions between creator and creation. We have a worldview that's rooted in the reality that God took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The worldview is built on the fact that the Son of God came to seek and save the lost. We have a scriptural worldview that demonstrates that sin can be forgiven in Christ and that you can have your guilt and your shame taken from you. We have a worldview that has a king who is enthroned, and this king is good, this king is right, and this king is true. Our worldview stems from the fact that this king is seated on high, and this king orchestrates all things for the glory of God. We have a worldview that elevates God and demotes man. Our worldview is built on self-sacrifice, not self-pleasing. Our worldview, our worldview says this, how much how much can I give away, not how much can I get? Our worldview says, how much can I serve, not what can you do for me? We have a worldview that is consistent and organized and unchanging. And we have a worldview that values that people and babies in the womb, a worldview that says men and women are different, yes, but equally God's image. And we have a worldview that promotes peace, love, and grace. Quite simply, we have a worldview that provides meaning, Purpose, dignity, and value to all persons. Our worldview has a true gospel message, one that announces forgiveness of sin in Christ and in him alone. And our worldview has this kingdom, this beautiful kingdom. Our worldview is to be received. It's not earned. His grace is sufficient. 
Now, the whole point of this is to demonstrate the transcendent majesty of God. So I would encourage you, church, you too, children, to contemplate the glory of God, his bigness, his majesty, his sovereignty, his supremacy. You, all of you kids, you have breath in your lungs because God says so. Your heart beats tens of thousands of times at night while you sleep. And you didn't do that. God did it. So the tone in Genesis 1-1 and the Bible itself rests on this magnificent God and our utter dependence upon his presence and his will, his providence, his purposes, his promises, all of it. So that is Genesis 1-1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our sins and the sins of this nation, the sins that are on full display. We are a needy people, for our rebellion is quite palpable. Father, it is evident that your sovereignty is, is in question, not just in some churches, but by and large in all quarters of this country. We, we have tried to usurp your, your authority by making arbitrary man-centered laws. We have tried to disregard your transcendence by making ourselves little gods. We know, Father, that the need of the hour is repentance, and we know that you are quick to give this to us via your Holy Spirit. So we ask for help, God. Help to live righteously. Help, help us in our efforts to labor for your glory. And we need help to see you as more and more glorious. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.